Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Renaud Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chathamos. He's co-author with James Blumel of Once Upon a Time in Iraq, History of a Modern Tragedy, available from Penguin Books. Renaud, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me again. Now, we are going to uh, look at Iraq in, in detail, but I wanted to, first of all, to get your response to the Russian uh, invasion of the Ukraine. I'm thinking that uh, Russia is deeply invested in the Iraqi energy sector. Russia has relations, both diplomatic and military, uh, throughout the MENA region. Do you think that uh, countries are going to be asked to take sides, MENA countries, in this in this uh, escalating uh, situation? Well, I think uh, at the moment, uh, it's still a bit too early to tell. The big question is how far Russia goes into Ukraine. If it is, as some are fearing, a full-scale invasion, uh, the question then becomes the extent, you know, the extent to which Russia turns into a pariah state uh, and, and allies of uh, the U.S. allies of uh, the West are are kind of back into this almost uh, Cold War scenario, which we know in the past also played out in the Middle East and in countries like Iraq. Uh, so if that is the case, if we are talking about a massive tectonic shift uh, in geopolitics, then, you know, Russia does have interests in Iraq, particularly, as you say, in the oil and gas uh, sector, particularly in northern Iraq in the Kurdistan region, where we know that, for example, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, which effectively runs uh, the KRG at the moment, is a very close ally to the U.S. as well. Uh, and so the U.S. allies uh, will definitely have big questions put on them and asked of them. And again, as I say, the caveat to this is if Russia turns into a pariah state based on a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So we'll have to wait and see. But I'm sure, you know, I was just in Iraq meeting with different leaders and they're also watching this. You know, Iraqi leaders are watching uh, with concern uh, what is happening in Ukraine. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and yes, you're wise to put the caveats on. We will just have to wait and see how this plays out in the, in the days and weeks ahead. But, but let us uh, now focus uh, on Iraq and the elections. First of all, that took place about three months ago. And there was something of a breakthrough with independent MPs and new protest parties winning more than 70 seats. Has it made a difference at all in what to date has been an ineffectual corrupt and and incompetent parliament? You know, these elections uh, that happened uh, in October 2021 were really sort of seen by some to be a turning point, a potential turning point uh, from the cycles of conflict and violence and insurgencies and corruption that have marred Iraq's ineffective state building since uh, 2003. They were called early uh, in response to widespread uh, anti-regime protests that erupted in 2019 and, and, and were based on the resignation of a prime minister, uh, Adil Abdul Mahdi. So there were certain changes and these early elections were meant to be part of that sort of push for something different. Uh, and the question was, can these early elections bring about true reform in Iraq, as I say, as a way to move the country past its, its cycles of violence and conflict and, 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 and corruption. 
what we saw from the electoral results also hinted at potentially some change. As you say, you know, and as we saw several seats up to potentially 70, uh, I, I would say the number's a bit uh, lower now, but several seats were, were won by candidates who represented uh, either the protest movements uh, that had made such a loud stance against corruption or independents who also represented what is widespread citizen disillusionment at the political system in Iraq. And so there was, you know, people saying, hang on a minute, is this actually a chance? You have people winning, gaining seats in parliament who we never thought would be sitting in parliament. Especially in the context, and this is important to always bring up, that these elections had the lowest voter turnout since Iraq has had elections after 2003. So most people do not believe uh, that elections, that politics represents them, protects them, or, or looks out for their interests and their basic needs. And so with all of that, you know, what we've seen since the election is these MPs trying to come together, trying to foster and channel some of that hope for reform, but not quite hitting uh, sort of expectations yet. And of course, it's still very early. One of their main issues has been, can they form a unified bloc? Because of course, they're not one party, they're several parties and independent individuals. And so we're seeing already some uh, fractures. We're already seeing some internal splits, uh, which is really questioning whether these elections will present something different or whether that political system is still muddling through. Mm -hmm. Now, the last time we had you on the podcast, you spoke about the level of entrenched corruption, uh, politically sanctioned corruption, you called it, and, and the awful impact it is having on ordinary Iraqis has anything improved? I would say that not much has improved yet. Last time we spoke, we, it was in the context of those two big hospital fires that killed you know, over 100 COVID-19 patients in two hospitals over the summer. You know, We also talked about electricity and corruption and, and the political parties that benefit from contracting, but the state then unable to provide the basic services to people. So people are left without electricity, people are left not trusting hospitals, not trusting doctors, not trusting pharmacies um, because of corruption. And we still very much see that. Uh, a Chatham House project that we're currently working on is looking at what we're calling the kind of cross-border uh, conflict supply chain. And one case study is pharmaceuticals. And here, what's interesting with pharmaceuticals, it really kind of hits the, you know, at the core of the question you're asking. Iraqis interact with going to the pharmacy every day. What we're finding is a majority of the drugs they're using are either fake or expired. And the reason for that isn't that there isn't, it isn't just that there isn't regulation, but that political parties across the spectrum are benefiting in the billions per year on a massive pharmaceutical trade that at the end of the day, the end user, the Iraqi citizen is harmed by. 
Uh, and so to answer your question, you know, this type of grand corruption, this type of corruption that brings all the political parties together, we, we even need to talk about whether we are still talking about corruption or whether we're just talking about a political system that's unaccountable and has zero transparency. That is a really grim situation when people, as you say, going to the pharmacy cannot even trust that the medication they're getting may be fake or is, is, is out of date and, and that political parties are engaged in this. And as you say, billions uh, of dollars worth of, of uh, corruption going on there. I mean, it, it sounds like a very important study. And uh, when, when will that be coming out? So it's, 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 it's a multi-year uh, project. Um, we're hoping to publish a sort of article, an initial article, a small piece uh, on it in the next few weeks or so. Uh, and then a longer read, probably sometime in the summer, looking at how this conflict supply chain works, um, how it spreads across the region, by the way, from Iran all the way to Lebanon and the countries in between, and Iraq being a core a part of that. And again, as I say, what we're, why we're interested in this is often when we look at these kind of, you know, when we do this type of research, we look at weapons and cash and drugs, uh, you know, illicit drugs. But here we're talking about something that is legal. And here we're talking about political parties that are sanctioning it, but at the end of the day, causing so much harm. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're still on, the project is ongoing, but as, as you know, as, as we're both saying, the, the findings are quite grim. It does speak to this question that, again, we explored last time. Uh, Mustafa Al-Khadami, does he continue to be a prime minister with very little real power? Yeah, and again, you know, the name Mustafa Al-Khadami or any other name here becomes less relevant. I think the way the system works as such is that whoever is prime minister is put there to present effectively a good image on what is increasingly a toxic system. Uh, and that is an important role. It allows Iraq to maintain foreign relations. It allows Iraq to maintain the ideological discourse of reform, of change, while you just dig slightly under the surface and you see the system for what it is and the political parties for what they are. Um, and so, you know, whether it's Mustafa Al-Khadami or someone else, a similar profile, I'd say, is, is important at the moment uh, because of what the prime minister and president represent in the Iraqi state. Again, basically what you're saying is that these are just figureheads or, or, or pieces of decoration almost that, that the West can, can look at and, and, and somehow ease our consciences. While at the same time, the, um, the story of Iraq is getting very little coverage in Western media. Yeah, and, you know, at, at risk of, of, of misleading, I think, and, 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 and that is important that, you know, as we're saying, a system where Iraqi citizens are harmed every day with things like going to the pharmacy or fear of going to hospitals and all of the corruption around electricity, lack of water, all of this putting someone on the top that allows Iraq to continue seeming like on the right track. And as you say, also Iraq going out of the news, Iraq no longer uh, a conflict country, Iraq now stabilizing, and, and that word is being used, really masks what is a resilient 
toxic system. And I think that's why we're, you know, every few years there's a surprise. Wow, Iraq is back in the news. Uh, because, you know, this is not sustainable. And every few years you do get a crisis because of this. Um, and, and yeah, so there's a huge question. It's a huge debate, you know, the, the value of, of these kind of compromised prime ministers. The system is based on consensus, right? This whole idea of an elite pact. All the parties need to come together to split state coffers uh, and to share power. And the only way to do that is to appoint someone who can be the nominal leader, but who won't push back against the ruling elite. Mm. What about Iran? The last time we spoke, you made the point that many Iraqis intensely dislike the influence that Tehran is exerting in their country. Any headway in curbing that influence? Yeah, I mean, you know, very clearly, uh, Iran had and has become the most uh, significant external power in Iraq, meddling in Iraqi domestic affairs. And the reaction to that is an anti-Iran movement uh, across Iraq, but in particular, uh, where of interest in the South and, and you know, Baghdad, the center, where there was once an assumption that because Iraqis in those areas are Shia and because Iranians are Shia, you would have this almost Shia crescent. Uh, and that has kind of, you know, and, and the borders don't really need to exist. That has been obviously questioned with many Iraqi Shia protesting against Iran, which has actually put Iran in a massive uh, predicament and, and, and a point of reflection on, you know, how have they lost so much ideological power in, in Iraq, uh, which has huge implications for uh, its longer term strategy. It cannot survive as an external, almost occupying force if it's lost so much ideological power amongst the population in, in, in Iraq. And I think we also need to keep in mind that we're, you know, Iraq is in a post Qasem Slimani uh, environment. Qasem uh, Soleimani, the IRGC general, uh, assassinated on the orders of then President Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and this is particularly becoming apparent in the government formation process that we've been talking about. In the past, you know, Qasem Soleimani played a direct role in bringing people together, in brokering deals, and ensuring that the elite pact and the consensus government muddled through. What we've seen this time, and, and there has been a lot of chaos, you know, a lot of internal rivalries, a, a huge conflict between Muqtad al-Sadr, who won the election, and Nuri al-Maliki, who represents some of the, you know, a significant block, but the other side, an inability to bring them together. Qasem Soleimani's replacement, uh, Qa'ani, has effectively wanted to take a different tactic. He has instead wanted to stay slightly away from it and allow the Iraqis to sort out their own house in a way. And, and because of that, we've seen even more chaos in the Shia house. And I think in the last few weeks, at least, if not months, Iran is now back, moving back, and, and you're seeing much more of a direct intervention from Tehran, from in the grand, you know, from the supreme leader, uh, Khamenei, because Qa'ani's plan wasn't really working, and Iran is becoming a bit more directly sort of interventionist in saying, 
we need to get these people, we need to get these parties together, we need to get this government somehow moving in, in any case uh, at risk of further conflict if this protracted government formation process continues as is. Yeah, well, that's interesting too, isn't it? Because the, the aftershocks of the assassination of, of Soleimani and as you say, a certain hesitancy, but now Iran moving back in again? Yeah, so, you know, I think clearly Iran and Qa'ani uh, really look at someone like Soleimani as, as, uh, as an anomaly. And I know, you know, colleagues uh, have, have often sort of uh, looked at that, like what Qasem Soleimani was doing in Iraq wasn't necessarily what Iranian foreign policy and grand strategy wanted. And Qa'ani is representing a different school of thought, which is much more uh, interested in developing institutional relations between the Iranian state and the Iraqi state, a much more formal process, not the whims of one individual sending, you know, WhatsApp messages or signal messages to meet up in a very informal way. However, to get to that, for Iran to get to that point, you know, there will be chaos. And I think this government formation process is really looking at that vacuum and, and clearly still a role for brokering is required, at least felt required by uh, the leadership in Tehran. But as you say, there is this nationalist mood afoot among uh, many, many Iraqis, including in the South, that really resent this uh, overarching Iranian influence. I wanted to ask you about Mosul. You've been in, uh, in, in Iraq recently, and I, I think of Mosul, the city that was pulverized, really, in the liberation from ISIS. Um, how is Mosul faring? I ask because it seems to me the city is a symbol, really, of whether Iraq can emerge from this awful cycle of violence and corruption. Yeah. And I was recently in Mosul as well and saw that, saw that basically um, it's, you know, you have two sides to the story. You do see in particularly in the east of the city that, you know, you're seeing investment, you're seeing a younger population, you're seeing startups, you're seeing cafes, you're seeing a booming sort of industry with a lot of focus and a lot of external sort of uh, investment coming into Mosul, the UN and, and other agencies as well, providing opportunities in a way for, for, for locals in Mosul. So, and, and, you know, when you go inside, you know, inside the Mosul streets, you don't see any more armed groups, you don't see police, you know, you don't see militias as such, you don't see that. Uh, things are moving ahead, it, you know, on the surface, it looks like it's, it's moving towards some kind of uh, stable future. But once again, as we've been talking about the rest of Iraq, once you start digging uh, a bit deeper into what's happening in the city and the province of Mina or more generally, you begin to see some alarm or hear some alarm bells. For example, a lot of families have not returned yet. Um, a lot of reconstruction isn't uh, hasn't taken place. You still see damage. You still see buildings, not just with the bullet holes, but completely destroyed. A lot of people from Mosul are saying, 
you know, we still haven't seen the central government. It's been five years since liberation and these things aren't fixed. Uh, services aren't being provided. All of the promises of post-ISIS liberation haven't been met or lived up to. And, fun, you know, fundamentally, there hasn't been even a reconciliation. After such a traumatic experience, there hasn't really been enough of a discussion, I think. Uh, and, and I'm trying to attempt to move forward. And, and I'll give you one example or like something that, that is sort of, um, you know, um, we're beginning to look at, which is the tensions even between the east and the west of the city. So, you know, the west, the ancient city is where ISIS held out for longest. And in the east, which was liberated a while before the west was, families quickly started to get reconstruction. You know, you see the east developing, you see the East becoming prominent and the East almost blaming the West, saying the West is actually, why did they hold out to ISIS so long? Why did the West not liberate as quickly as we did? And the West saying, why is the East getting all of the attention? Why is the East getting all of the reconstruction money? Why is it, it seems unfair and unequal? So that's just a small kind of societal observation. And, and there are many of these types of observations that kind of draw some concern that some of the roots of uh, conflict, some of the societal roots and tensions in socioeconomic issues that lead to groups like ISIS haven't been addressed yet. Uh, so on the surface, you're seeing trips to Mosul. The Pope went to Mosul uh, last year. Foreign heads of states have gone to Mosul. Uh, it is stable. There hasn't been security incidents as such the lower, deeper sociological tensions, uh, socioeconomic tensions are very much still there. Mm. Well, let's stay in the North End because uh, Turkey's been carrying out airstrikes and the shelling of uh, uh, Kurdish PKK elements in, in the North. I'm just wondering what sort of impact that's having in efforts to stabilize the country, particularly since the Turks are also pressuring Baghdad, aren't they, to to, to join them in, in this, what they're calling these counterterrorism initiatives, mainly airstrikes. Um, what sort of pressures, and, and, and again, how is that impacting on efforts to stabilize the country? Yeah, again, I think that uh, Turkey, you know, has particularly felt a need to rejig its policy, Iraq policy post-ISIS in a number of ways. One, Many of the traditional allies, here I'm talking about Sunni Arab allies, such as the Mujafi families or other families uh, and groups, um, have really lost prominence uh, after ISIS. So there's been a huge shakeup to the scene post-ISIS. And Turkey, feeling like it needs to take a more direct uh, approach in a way to try and regain some uh, connectivity to those parts of Iraq, northwestern Iraq, but also this, let's call it the Sunni uh, side of Iraqi politics. And in doing so, Turkey has actually taken a direct approach in engaging with the two main Sunni leaders now, new leaders who did not have historic relations with Turkey as such, Mohammed al-Halbusi uh, and Khamis al-Khanjab. Uh, and so Turkey, as it tries to navigate the sort of revised Iraqi networks of power in Sunni politics, 
has in the meantime had to take a more interventionist approach because groups like PKK and other armed groups have taken over the vacuums that were left behind by ISIS. And some of these groups, as like the PKK and from the perspective of Turkey, are very problematic, of course. And, and, and because of that, Turkey is, is intervening. Also, I would say that, you know, Turkey, like every other country, is sensing opportunity to shape what post-ISIS in those areas will look like. Areas like Sinjar in particular aren't necessarily important just for ideological reasons, but for economic reasons. A lot of trade back and forth from Turkey requires Turkey to have more of a footprint in Iraq directly. And so because of that, yes, Turkey is uh, continuing to violate Iraq's sovereignty. Uh, in a way, and being condemned by Iraq's leadership, uh, as well as the groups, obviously, in those areas, not just the PKK, because of this interventionism. So that would, again, make, uh, well, Mustafa Al-Khadami and the government appear weak then. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's 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 no secret that Iraq uh, has struggled for, for since two thousand three to control its sovereign borders, and I think this is just another example of that. Mm. We're now more than a year into the Biden presidency, and and he appears to be a president who has pretty much forgotten Iraq, even though American troops remain in the country. Is Washington no longer a relevant player in Iraq? I think that you know. And, and, and Biden, of course, has a history uh, in Iraq and is largely responsible being Obama's person in charge of the Iraq file during the initial U.S. troop pullout that led to the security vacuum and that led to, uh, you know, supporting someone like Maliki, who then became prime minister for a second term and led to conflict and the socioeconomic issues and, 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 and conflict that led to ISIS rising in the first place. So the Biden team has a not a very good track record in Iraq. And, and that was a concern moving forward on, you know, what that would look like. I do still think a year on, we haven't seen too much of a departure from uh, the US's previous strategy in Iraq, if you even say the US has a strategy in any, in, in, in any case. And that is that Iraq seen largely through the prism of Iran, Iran's interventions in Iraq, but also the sort of US-Iran negotiations and, and, and the role that Iraq plays in that becoming very important, as well as the Biden administration trying to bring in more Gulf countries into uh, Iraq. But I think you're right. I think there is a fatigue with Iraq. Um, I think there's also a sense that you know the US doesn't have a solution, can't fix these problems and shouldn't be wasting more time and money on these problems. And the irony of this is that it's actually several regional countries that have been pushing back at the U.S. saying, no, you need to maintain a presence. You can't just leave. We've seen what happens when, when the U.S. leaves and we are concerned about, about, about that. So I think, you know, all of that as it is, the U.S. clearly doesn't have the same role as it had in previous government formation processes, although it does very clearly ha- has, again, taken a side. And, and that side happens to be a side to try and limit Iran's influence in, in Iraq. But I would say that Washington doesn't have great connectivity to the networks of power and the brokers that really make up Iraq's political system. Mm. Let me ask you then about uh, a new JCPOA deal. Uh, it, it looks like it, something will be reached uh, 
shortly. Do you see any benefits for Iraq? On the JCPOA deal, of course, for from the perspective of Iraq, if the US and Iran are talking to, to with each other, aren't shooting at each other and, and, and in conflict with each other, that makes Iraq less of a playground, which will allow Iraq to, to kind of move, move forward with whatever stabilization attempts that the leadership is, is pursuing. So any deal will be good for Iraq because one of, you know, although we often discuss the internal issues in Iraq, the corruption, the political parties benefiting uh, from corruption, harming, uh, Iraqi people, this Iraq doesn't exist in a it's sort of isolated. I don't know. It's not an island, and it's very much the playground for regional and U.S.-Iran conflict, uh, and that plays into all of this, right? And because of that, I think that a deal would be a positive step for Iraq in terms of it no longer being that playground that that has really shaken up its political system. Mm. So finally, Renaud, can I ask you then for your prognosis for the future of Iraq? Are there grounds for optimism? You know, it's it's a difficult question, but I know that, you know, often we do try and look at uh, optimism uh, and, and hope uh, and, and where the country is going. And based on our conversation over the last, uh, you know, last half hour or so, it doesn't seem like Iraq is is going towards a, a positive, stable uh, path, but has continued on its cycles of conflict and violence that we've seen. I think one thing that we should keep an eye out for in Iraq, and this is really where, when I am in Iraq, where I see hope, is the youth who are completely disillusioned with the political system, uh, but who increasingly make up a majority of the population. If you look at uh, over two thirds of Iraqis, I'm not sure what the up-to-date numbers are, but over two thirds of Iraqis are under the age of 25. Iraq has one of the largest youth populations, but also youth bulges in the region. And these youth, some of them, some of the, you know, the younger population, they're not giving up. They're trying different ways for a better life, whether it's the tech industry or whether it's the protests or whether it's media and wherever they're, they're working, they are still trying. I know many Iraqis have given up. Many of them would love to have a foreign passport so they could escape. And those smart, you know, those who are uh, educated have opportunities to escape, do escape. Um, and we've seen even people risk their lives to leave the country, but there still is a population who don't want to leave and who want to continue to change somehow what is the talk, you know, the toxic political system. And I would say that when I meet with these protesters or these youth uh, activists or, or just in general, the younger population, you do kind of seeing them after all they've lived through, you know, many of them don't even remember Saddam Hussein. They just know post-2003 conflict. After all they've been through, all the traumatic experiences they've gone through, the fact that they still are trying to do something different for their country, I think brings out some optimism, um, at least hope that if certain things are reformed at the top, there is a young population that uh, at the moment is, is, isn't giving up. A good, a good note to end on. Renaud, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me again.
You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Unad Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. We welcome your comments. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience and are available on a number of platforms, including Amazon Music, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Thank you.